Hi, I'm Jen Kelly from The Herald Sun. Join me for In Black and White, a podcast series about some of Melbourne's forgotten characters. It's available on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Bobby was not only an aficionado of ultralight aircraft and a very good self-taught engineer and a good ultralight aircraft pilot, but he was also a skilled amphetamines cook. His continued presence is like the sword of Damocles hanging over the head of these allegedly bent coppers. I'm Andrew Rule, and this is another episode of Life and Crimes. Recently in Victoria, we had a helicopter crash in the high country where a woman has been left severely injured and the man who was with her not as badly injured. But it reminds some of us who have been around for a while of another crash in the high country or in the northeast of Victoria at least, late in the year of 2002. And that was in Melbourne Cup Week of that year. It was a Sunday. It was November the 3rd. And it was the 52nd birthday of a man called Robert Peter Slusarchik. And Robert Peter Slusarchik, better known as Bobby, was popular in certain circles. Bobby was not only an aficionado of ultralight aircraft and a very good self-taught engineer and a good ultralight aircraft pilot, but he was also a skilled amphetamines cook. And because of this skill, he was sought out by various people. Um, People that he was most recently associated with were members of the Victorian Drug Squad. This is back in the days when Victoria had a dedicated drug squad. And it would appear in retrospect that some members of that drug squad were dedicated mostly to enriching themselves through manipulating the system. On the afternoon of November 3rd, 2002, Bob Slasarchik and his old mate Vincenzo Maramo, who's a man of around 72 years old, so he's about 20 years older, they take off from a local airfield around Mount Beauty somewhere and they fly the little ultralight down towards Gapstead Winery, which is a big vineyard near Myrtleford. And it appears that Bob, being the friendly, charming fellow that he could be at times, he could also be a very tough, heavy, nasty customer when it suited him, but charming Bob had promised a lady who worked at Gapstead Winery that he would land his ultralight at the winery that day and come in and you know buy a bottle of wine and shoot the breeze. And it appears that he was attempting to do that when it seems, and no one is sure about this, it seems that something went very wrong and that a downdraft of wind drove the ultralight into the ground. Now, no one is sure what actually happened to that machine or why it crashed, but what we are sure of is that that crash, while very bad luck for Bob and his passenger, who ended up extremely dead, it was very good luck for some members of the drug squad because it seems that they had charged their great and good friend Bob with some drug charges back in 1999, manufacturing of drug charges, and he had let it be known that he would give evidence against them if asked certain questions at the forthcoming trial. And so it seems that his death in this ultralight fatality was very lucky for certain members of the drug squad who, as subsequent events showed, were corrupt. 
So what sort of guy was Bobby Sosarchik? I'm not sure what the average drug cook looks like or sounds like, but I guess there's a stereotype or two stereotypes. And one is of the sort of bikey type, you know, the pot-bellied hell's angel that's got a Harley in the living room and uh, a tank full of pet snakes and and a sawn-off shotgun under the bed. And the other is the Breaking Bad idea of the maverick science teacher gone wrong who's forced by circumstances into working for the bad guys to make some cash for a higher purpose. I suspect that both those stereotypes are probably not quite right. In the case of our man Bob Slazarczyk, he was probably a blend of both. He clearly had the brains, the natural intelligence, and to some extent education to turn himself into a good drug cook, which is a process that requires attention to detail, intimate knowledge of the materials you use, and great care so you don't blow yourself up or poison yourself. Those attributes, of course, come from that sort of Breaking Bad science teacher type person. But Bob was by no means a sugar plum fairy. He wasn't a terribly nice person in every way. Those who knew him and liked him found him good company, engaging, and a pretty good bloke in many ways. But they acknowledged that he had a very hard side to him. And that is obvious because he was in fact convicted of rape when he was a young man and had been charged with various other crimes over the journey, most of which he beat, probably due to his own smarts and that of his defence lawyers, which at one stage included the very well-known fallen lawyer, Andrew Fraser. He was a very good, probably self-taught engineer. He was regarded by legitimate people in aviation as a good ultralight pilot. He was regarded as a very meticulous person with maintenance of his aircraft. And we must point out that this fatality in November of 2002 was the first of, say, half a dozen fatalities in six or eight months. Ultralights claim several lives a year for several years. They are dangerous, but they were particularly dangerous back in the early days when people were still experimenting with what were often homemade aircraft or kits that people have made up, relying on very small, underpowered and sometimes unreliable motors. So the drug squad in that era, 2002, was effectively headed by a policeman whose name later became notorious, and that is a very senior investigator called Wayne Strawhorn. And Wayne Strawhorn was well known throughout the police force as a good crook catcher. He was good at catching crooks, and a little bit like good fishermen, he learned to think like a fish. That is, he learned to think like a crook, and he worked out the best ways to catch crooks was to set traps for them and to lie in wait. And he was undoubtedly very good at this, and he was undoubtedly a deep thinker, and he undoubtedly worked out ways to catch crooks that were very ingenious. And one of the methods he came up with was a scheme to buy the precursor materials used to cook up drugs, cook up amphetamines, to buy those using police money, that is government money, taxpayer money, to go to the big official drug firms like Sigma and others and to buy precursor chemicals as used by amphetamines cooks, that is backyard chemists, 
to make amphetamines. And he was able to buy these drugs very cheaply because he was buying them on the official market. And those drugs don't have a lot of value on the legitimate official market. And so he could load up a bootload of this stuff for basically you know, a few hundred dollars. And then he could take it around to crooks that he was targeting. And this is the theory, at least. The theory was that he would take it to crooks, sell them or supply them with the precursor materials, allow them to make the cook, to cook up the methamphetamine, and then follow that methamphetamine through the chain so that he would be able to arrest the street-level dealers and the others that were involved in the whole chain of distribution. Now, this was a very good theory, but when you think about it, it was fraught with risk because the problem is with supplying cheap precursor materials and pretending to be a bent detective is that there is a great temptation to not just be a double agent, which is what he was supposedly being, but to be a triple agent and to actually engage to sell the product on his own account or to get other people to sell the product on his own account. And so it came to pass that some people in the police force, elsewhere in the police force, outside the drug squad, internal investigators got wind of rumours that some members of the drug squad were running red hot. And the rumour was that Wayne Strawhorn and some of his key henchmen, and we'll mention one of them here, Stephen Patton, or Payton, that Stephen Payton and a couple of others were mixed up in this scheme where they would take the drugs to known crooks and then keep a share of the drugs that were sold and the real facts of the matter were mixed up and got lost in the paperwork. And so while they were arresting a few people and sending them off to court and therefore sending off to jail, they were also, the allegation goes, lining their own pockets. Now this is still a very controversial issue in the police force and outside it because although Wayne Strawhorn was ultimately arrested and convicted of these things, mainly on the testimony of a fellow policeman who'd been sprung doing the wrong thing, and he decided to sell out Wayne Strawhorn. There are those who still insist that Wayne Strawhorn wasn't really a part of it, that the other guys were the crooks, and that Wayne Strawhorn was guilty of nothing more than sloppy bookkeeping and acting like a bit of a cowboy, a bit of a Clint Eastwood, and running around doing things without entering up the amounts in books and keeping photographs and keeping records and all the rest of it. That is as may be, but a jury ultimately would convict Wayne Strawhorn, and send him to jail. What has all this got to do with the death in the ultralight of the man they call Beechworth Bobby and his old mate? Well, maybe everything or maybe nothing. Because it turns out that Beechworth Bobby was a skilled cook and there are those who are well-placed in this story, those who had very close relationship with Beechworth Bobby Sushachik, who say that the corrupt members of the drug squad were taking these precursor chemicals up to Bob at his place near Beechworth and they would hand them over and that he, using his undoubted skills and his equipment, would turn these precursor materials into highly saleable amphetamines. And then it is alleged by this particular source, who's a very good source, very close to the late Beechworth Bob, 
that they would halve it, that they would leave half the product with Bob and they would take the other half, which they would then sell on their own account. Now, this is the allegation. It might be that these cunning police were able to satisfy everyone, so it was a win-win-win, that they were setting up some dealers down the line with... uh, with product, uh, arranging for them to buy this methamphetamine and then following it through, catching these guys red-handed elsewhere, catching the people that they were supplying elsewhere and so on and so on. But it seems, and a jury did believe it, that they were also hiving off some of it to sell on their own account. And this is where these sort of schemes are highly risky because the temptation to turn a few bags of precursor materials worth a few dollars into hundreds of thousands of dollars, that temptation is enormous. So, boiled down, this is a thimble and pea trick by the alleged bent coppers. And that is, now you see it, now you don't. Here's a bag of methamphetamine. Here's another bag of methamphetamine. We sold that one to, you know, Lewis Moran and his sons, and we sold that one to somebody else and somebody else. But meanwhile, the one that fell down behind the couch, that got sold out the back door to somebody else. So there's room here to believe that police who were actually coming up with scalps and arrests and convictions were also running red hot and making money on the side. The crash is intriguing because the police, in their wisdom, had decided to charge Beechworth Bobby because apparently his fingerprints were found on a mixing bowl that was used at a methamphetamines cook that was connected with the notorious Moran family back in, this is the late 90s, 1999. And on the basis of those fingerprints, the drug squad decided to sacrifice their ally, this man that was cooking for them and decided that they would arrest him, send him to trial and it would be a good show trial that would make them look good. There was a risk involved and that is that this man, Beechworth Bobby Slosarczyk, would rat them out. And indeed, the rumour spread via his legal advisers that if he were asked certain questions during his committal or his trial that he would answer those questions very frankly and that it wouldn't look good for certain members of the drug squad. Now this is the background to the crash that happened in 2002. Bobby hasn't yet appeared in court to answer the questions, the tricky questions put to him by the Defence Council. And so really his continued presence is like the sword of Damocles hanging over the head of these allegedly bent coppers. And so when his ultralight crashes on that weekend and kills him and his mate, his innocent mate, it looks extremely suspicious. It seems enormously good luck for the bent coppers that he's probably going to dob in that he is killed. And because he's killed, of course, there's no court case and they sail on merrily only to come undone further on down the line. But a smell has hung over that crash for all these years. Now, in the interests of transparency, here at the Herald Sun, we have had another look at this crash, and we've talked to the experts that were called that night and that week and that month to look at the crashed aircraft, 
and to get their opinion on what really happened. And one of the experts, a man called Ray Hill, was summoned by some very anxious police on that Sunday night. They came and picked him up from Avenal, where he'd had a couple of drinks that night because it was a Sunday night. He said, I can't drive up there. I could be on the limit. They said, don't worry, we'll come and get you. They came down and picked him up and they took him back up to the crash site at two o'clock in the morning where the crash site was floodlit with big lights and they hadn't even removed the bodies from the crash because they wanted this ultralight expert, Mr Hill, to look at the whole scene to work out what he thought had gone wrong. He looked at it, he took notes. Next morning in daylight, he turned up again and he took more notes. And his conclusion was, and this was the basis of a report later released by the appropriate authorities, his conclusion was that the pilot, that is Beechworth Bobby, had put the plane down on too steep an angle and that there'd been a wind change and that it had driven the plane nose first into the ground. He said it's very easy to do, an easy mistake to make if you are a little bit ambitious or a little bit optimistic about the angle of descent and as soon as you lose what they call uplift on the wings, your plane becomes a brick and you plummet straight into the earth and he said it was that crash, what they call compression injuries, that killed the two men. Now this was the basis of a report that was made about it. I also tracked down recently the expert mechanic, aviation engine mechanic, who is still in that field, and he recalls stripping the motor down of Beechworth Bob's aircraft, and he said he couldn't find any mechanical fault, which is interesting because I understand that some police believe there was a mechanical fault, but he can't recall finding any mechanical fault, and he said that, in fact, that is very normal, that most fatal crashes, in fact, most crashes, with ultralights particularly, have not been caused by mechanical issues, but by pilot error. And that this crash, sinister as it seemed, and as convenient as it seemed for the corrupt police who were involved in making and selling drugs, the reality is it's almost certain that the crash was a genuine accident caused by pilot error. It just goes to show that we can't always jump to conclusions. Thanks for listening. Please comment or rate it on whatever platform you're using. And if you haven't done it already, please subscribe. Hello, I'm John Ralph. I'm Glenn McFarlane. We'll take you behind the scenes with some of the biggest names in the game to find out how they found out their time was up and who pulled the trigger. Welcome to Sacked, the podcast that explores what really happens after the axe falls on an AFL coach. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for every episode on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.